Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is December 17th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is The NNT, Wet or Dry. And our guest skeptics are Dr. Matthew Reeves and Dr. Joshua Reynolds. Matt is a professor and interim chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the College of Human Medicine at MSU. Josh is an associate professor of emergency medicine at the College of Human Medicine at MSU. Welcome to the SGM, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Ken. It's great to be on uh, SGM, my first time, and I'm, uh, I'm excited. Well, I'm excited too. And your co-author is Dr. Joshua Reynolds. Outside of his academic duties, he works clinically in the adult ED program at Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan, the tertiary care center for Western Michigan. Welcome to the SGM, Josh. Hey, thanks. Matt, I'm wondering, how did you end up being such an epi uber nerd? Yeah, I am an uber nerd, that's for sure. But yeah, my original clinical training was uh, as a veterinary surgeon. I got trained at the University of Liverpool in England, the home of the Mighty Reds. And uh, then I went on, I uh, took a flight to uh, North America and received internship and, and uh, residency training in uh, surgery at the University of Minnesota and Colorado State. So I did five years worth of clinical training at, uh, at the veterinary schools there. And that's when I really discovered the power of clinical epidemiology and what it, and what it could uh, unlock for the thinking clinician. And it really, epidemiology really became my passion very quickly and surgery less so. And uh, I ultimately got a, a PhD in the topic of epidemiology from the University of Pennsylvania and uh, transitioned out of clinical work about 25 years ago. And I've been at MSU at the College of Human Medicine for about the last 20 years. Well, you're a lad from Liverpool. Does that mean you hung out at the Cavern Club for a while? Well, the Cavern Club had been knocked down by there, but we used to stagger by what was now a parking lot where it used to be. This is back in the early 80s, so things were still a little rough in Liverpool then, But uh, so you have to be careful where you went staggering, but yes, indeed. Well, it's much closer to the Beatles than I have ever gotten. But what's your area of research? Yeah, so now my uh, principal area of research is in the area of acute stroke, and uh, I'm really an outcomes uh, researcher. Uh, studying the link between quality of care and patient outcomes. Well, the SGMers know that I also have a keen interest in the area of stroke, but we're not going to get into that today. Josh, how did you get involved in this project? Yeah, so I'm fortunate enough to uh, to co-lead the four-week epidemiology and EBM course with Matt. been doing that for about three, four years now. We, we run it for about 200 first-year MSU medical students every year. And obviously, as you might imagine, Epi is not really a first-year med student's favorite subject, something I can personally attest to. I myself could only barely muster some lackluster enthusiasm during my own compulsory exposure to Epi as a first-year student. But going on through medical school and residency, discovering resuscitation science and the allure thereof uh, showed me really both the necessity and added value of clinical Epi and evidence-based medicine. So I ended up doing a master's in clinical research at the University of Pittsburgh, where I really got a firmer grasp of the field for the first time. So I've been at MSU for six years and co-direct this course with Matt. And we're always tasked with making it more interesting and more entertaining for these, uh, these somewhat lackadaisical students. Uh, and so really I have to give, give credit to Matt. This is how the concept of the NNT-WET was born. 
sort of off a, a side tangent during one of uh, one of his lectures. I, I'm just having a hard time a priori accepting that Clint Epi wasn't the most exciting first year <laughs> class. <laughs> Yeah, believe it or not, I have vivid memories of of banging my head against the wall trying to figure this stuff out as a first-year student. Well, this is an SGEM Extra and the result of your December AEM publication suggesting a new metric to emphasize the inherent inefficiencies of clinical practice. And I want the listeners to know, it's a satirical article seems to be in that same ethos as the annual BMJ holiday edition. Yeah, it is. And I will say, uh, you know, we, we emphasize in the title, it, it's only mostly satirical. But sure, it is. You know, Matt and I kicked this idea around for about 6 to 12 months, and we tried our best. We tried uh, to get it actually into the BMJ holiday edition. Uh, it was under review for about a year, I think, before they kicked it back to us with some comments and, and, a, and a rejection after re- review. After that, we pivoted to JAMA Internal Medicine and tried to get it in there as an April Fool's piece and came close uh, two years running, but ran into some editorial board red tape up the chain at JAMA. But then, of course, the folks at Academic Emergency Medicine were took pity on us and were, were kind enough to take it. Well, AEM is one of my favorite journals, but I do obviously have to identify my bias because I'm a senior editor for AEM. And I don't want to dish on the BMJ too much because they've published some great stuff in their holiday edition, and we've covered two of them on the SGEM. Some of my favorite BMJ holiday edition articles have been the classic parachute trial by Smith and Pell back in 2003. Are you familiar with the parachute trial? Uh, yes, we use it as an example in our, our EPI course when we sketch out the pyramid of evidence for students talking about different levels of evidence and their associated risks of bias. You know, I also use it in my teaching of clinical epidemiology and biostatistics, and I usually take a dozen students and randomize them into two groups where they have to put their hand into an opaque bag and pick out a parachute man with half the parachute men have the parachute chopped off so it's not blinded, and half the parachute men contain the parachute, and then we find a large high place within the university and go and launch the parachute men off uh, off some high building and stuff. And then we ask them, which group would they like to be randomized into? It's very effective and lots of fun on social media to post the videos. Perfect. For those not familiar with the parachute trial, it was a study talking about how parachutes have been used for years to prevent orthopedic head and soft tissue injuries when people are facing gravitational challenges, like voluntarily jumping out of a plane, have either one of you done parachuting before? Because I have not. I'm too chicken. Uh, No, but it is on my list. Well, the parachute trial talked about some observational data showing parachute use led to injuries, even when they were used correctly. And there were also case reports of people surviving free fall out of a plane without a parachute or it opening correctly. And so they set out to do a systematic review to look for any randomized control trials to put into a systematic review to see if parachutes could prevent major trauma and mortality. In their search, found no studies. So they suggested taking all the EBM advocates up in a plane and having them randomized in a double-blinded fashion to a parachute or a sham, and the sham would be a backpack. And this would be a crossover trial to make it even more rigorous. 
And so you would fly the people up and they would jump out of the plane voluntarily. And anyone who survived the first jump would be randomized into the opposite group. Only then would we have definitive evidence for the efficacy of parachutes. Love that trial. Well, I'll tell you, Ken, uh, I, you know, there, since then there's been an RCT done and published on this very topic in the 2018 BMJ Holiday Edition. I, I won't spoil the conclusions for you, but it, it's a great read. Yeah, it's a great read. And we plan to cover this article as an SGM Extra in 2020. But let's get to your publication. Give the SGMers the full citation so that they can hear it and go look it up. Right. So it's Reeves and Reynolds, the NNT wet and NNT dry, uh, mostly satirical new metrics to emphasize the inherent inefficiency of clinical practice in AEM December 2019. I like how you put mostly because that refers to one of my favorite 80s movies, The Princess Bride. They're only mostly dead. <laughs> but remind the SGMers, what is the NNT? Right. So NNT stands for the number needed to treat. Uh, it's, a, it's an effect measure. It's a summary measure that estimates the average number of patients or subjects that need to be treated to positively impact one person with some given therapeutic benefit. Uh, Andreas Lapatius described it in 1988. He was an internist and clinical epidemiologist at McMaster's in the time in Ontario. And he got this published in the New England Journal. And how would you describe the NNT mathematically? Sure. So I, I always tell my, my MSU students that the number needed to do anything is one over the absolute change in risk or one over the risk difference. So in this case, the number needed to treat or the number needed to impart some therapeutic benefit is the inverse or one over the absolute risk reduction or ARR. So NNT is one divided by ARR. Well, I can't remember if I told you that there be no math. But can you give us some math as a simple example to get our heads around this concept of the NNT? Yeah. So let, let's say I develop some new drug to treat a bad disease with a, a baseline mortality risk of 25%. And, and my new drug reduces mortality risk from 25% to 15%. So that translates to an absolute change in risk or an absolute risk reduction of 10%. So NNT is then 1 divided by 10% or 1 divided by 0.1. So the NNT is 10 so I have to treat 10 patients on average to positively impact one patient with some therapeutic benefit from my new drug. So likewise, so my same drug, if say it reduces mortality risk from 25% only down to 20%, that translates to an absolute risk reduction of 5%. NNT is 1 divided by 0 0.05, so the NNT is 20. And what is the advantage of using something like the NNT? Yeah, so, so the, the purported advantage is that it, it's a it's a simple single number. It's sort of easy to wrap your head around. You know, using one number, you can convey to clinicians or patients the absolute impact or effectiveness of any given therapy. So, an intervention with a lower number needed to treat is theoretically more efficacious, since you have to treat fewer patients to observe therapeutic benefit. Well, I have seen this number become quite popular, and I often see studies now when they publish it included in the results section. They will have an NNT. Yeah, and I'm sure your listeners have seen the, the whole internet domain, the internet site, nnt.com or the nnt.com. I think that's been up for some time now, and this site extols the virtues of NNT to promote the most effective therapies and questions those with high NNT values or, or those with uh, insufficient benefit. Uh, as an aside, I should just point out that the nnt.com did pick up our, our paper, did pick up our article on Twitter and a retweet, uh, but I have yet to see a comment or official rebuttal from their leadership. 
Well, I can always reach out to their leadership because I had one of the leaders on the SGEM this season. But while trying to quantify potential benefits, it's also important to quantify the potential harms to any intervention. Yeah, that's that's right, Ken. So uh, let me jump in here a little bit. So when we're quantifying the harms associated with treatment, the corollary of the NNT is the number needed to harm, or the NNH, which is similar to the NNT, calculated as the inverse of the absolute risk increase. So rather than taking the inverse of the absolute risk reduction, when we're talking about a therapy that increases the risk of a bad outcome, we talk about the absolute risk increase. The NNH estimates the average number of patients who need to be treated before one person is negatively harmed or impacted by the therapy itself. So interventions with higher NNH are theoretically less risky since more patients can be treated before an adverse treatment-related event occurs. And so when you combine this with the NNT, these two numbers can help both patients and physicians you know, trade off the relative risks and benefits of a treatment. So, you know, the idea of both the NNH and NNT, it's uh, two numbers that, uh, again, can help you balance weigh the relative benefits and risks of a treatment. The NNT and NNH is pretty intuitive to me and makes more sense than something like an odds ratio. However, there are some limitations to this metric. Yeah, there are indeed, Ken. And uh, one of the biggest limitations I see uh, when people are using NNT and NNH estimates is they don't or they forget to remind you over what time period those estimates are based on. So every NNT, every NNH has an explicit time period associated with it. It's absolutely crucial that we understand over what time period that NNT is going to be is being measured. So an NNT measured over one year will be larger than an NNT measured over three years, for example. So as the, uh, assuming a constant treatment benefit, as we progress, as we prolong our follow-up of patients, the NNT estimates get smaller and smaller uh, because the absolute risk difference between the two groups is getting wider and wider as we have more follow-up. So time dependence is a critical factor that needs to be uh, remembered and accounted for. Also, like any other clinical outcome measures, we need to think about other uh, important aspects of the outcome. For example, is this a disease-orientated outcome uh, or is it a patient-centered or patient-oriented outcome? So is this an outcome that means something to patients or is this just an outcome that can be measured it's a physiological measure such as a unit change in blood pressure, but that change may not necessarily translate to a meaningful change for the patient. So we want the NNTs applied to patient-oriented outcomes rather than disease-oriented outcomes. And then, of course, there are a lot of other complexities about uh, choosing different treatments. Uh, the obvious one is cost, right? So the NNT and NH say nothing about the relative cost-effectiveness of treatments. And so, you know, again, that's a different conversation, but there's a lot of other things that need to be incorporated in the decision-making when picking one treatment over another that simply cannot be captured by two numbers, the NNT and the NNH. Yeah, with simplicity also comes 
a risk of being misleading because it's such a simple number and the answer is much more complex and it all depends and there are many factors that come into it. So we can't just interpret the NNT in isolation. We have to make sure that it's over a certain time frame, that it's something very important to patients, what's the cost involved in this. All of these things must be used to interpret what does that NNT mean. And if you want more information on this, my friend, an SGM faculty member and PEDS EM superhero, Dr. Anthony Croco, has a great whiteboard video explaining the concepts and applications of the NNT and NNH on Sketchy EBM website. But let's get to your new metric. I mean, that's why we're talking today. This is the NNT WET. Indeed, let's get to the NNT WET. So the NNT WET is the what we call the mathematical complement of the NNT. And the NNT WET stands for the number needed to waste everybody's time. So WET is waste everybody's time. And it's calculated as the NNT minus one. All right. And what does the NNT wet waste everybody's time? What does that really mean? Yeah. So the number needed to waste everybody's time estimates the average number of patients who need to be treated but receive no therapeutic benefit for someone else to benefit. So the NNT wet is a direct measure of the inefficiency of clinical practice. It conveys the ineffectiveness of clinical interventions by measuring the effort required to just help one single patient. And so we believe in this new era of limited medical resources and therapeutic nihilism that the NNT wet is the metric that provides the most appropriate level of cynicism required by today's practicing clinicians. Well, my friend Rory Spiegel, who describes himself as an EM nihilist, is going to love this new metric. Are there any advantages to using the NNT wet over the regular NNT? Well, for sure, yeah. First of all, you know, the NNT fails to sufficiently emphasize that most patients do not benefit from treatments routinely used in clinical practice. Since the vast majority of NNT estimates exceed two, a given patient individual patient is unlikely to benefit from any treatment treatment given. And we'll throw a figure in the show notes so you can get a concept visually of what that means. But how do you think this changes the conversation we have with patients? Yeah, we, uh, we're, we're interested to see, to get feedback from people uh, when they start using the NNT wet in clinical practice and, and get, give us some feedback about how it's working for them. But we think that the NNT wet will help shift the clinical conversation from the assumption that we must treat the patient, you know, for example, this treatment is great, the NNT is only 10, to a state best described really as sort of a therapeutic malaise. I mean, for an NNT of 10, that converts to an NNT wet of nine. And so the nihilist could say, What's the point of treatment? You know, if the NNT is nine, NNT wet is nine. So we think that the NNT wet helps illustrates that for most treatments, the costs and inconvenience and risks are disproportionately applied to the many, to most patients, so that only a single patient, a single person, uh, will benefit. And of course, being the unlucky ones, uh, it's unlikely that you are the person who will benefit. It's probably going to be somebody else. But really, this approach should be tested empirically. 
For example, one could present clinical scenarios to patients or to clinicians detailing effect measures of proposed treatments with both the NNT and the NNT wet. And our hypothesis is that scenarios based on the NNT wet in lieu of the NNT would result in patients and clinicians less likely to be selecting marginally effective treatments. So we think it could, uh, we could reduce the use of, uh, of marginal and questionable treatments. But this needs to be uh, tested empirically. And actually, uh, Josh and I have a grant into the nihilism study section of NIH that we're cautious, cautiously optimistic about. Well, this whole thing reminds me of one of my favorite recent publications. Don't just do something. Stand there. The value and art of deliberate clinical inertia. How about reimagining the number needed to harm? Yes, yeah, so a number needed to harm we translated into the NNT dry. Of course, NNT dry being the corollary to NNT wet. Took some laborious review of several thesauruses or thesauri to make the acronyms work, but we ultimately arrived at NNT dry or the number needed to divert reckless intervention using the same rationale as the NNT wet corresponding to the NNT. So what's the math for that calculation? Yeah, so NNT dry is NNH minus one, just like NNT wet is NNT minus one. And so how would you define that other than mathematically? Right, so the number needed to divert reckless intervention, or NNT dry, estimates the average number of patients who need to be treated, but whom go on to escape that particular therapy's adverse events in order for someone else to sustain the adverse event. So NNT dry is really a, a measure or an inverse measure of the recklessness of clinical intervention. So a small NNT dry indicates that only a few patients escape harm, whereas a large NNT dry is, is really reassuring since regardless of whether anybody benefits, most of the patients treated are not harmed. So a large NNT dry is really the state of Hippocratic bliss, primum non docere. Well, we talked about advantages to the NNT wet. Are there any advantages to the NNT dry over using a NNH? Sure. So the NNH, we believe, really insufficiently acknowledges the patients that regularly escape our therapeutic malfeasance. And so really, we think clinicians should rejoice in large NNT dry estimates that represent the multitude of patients that they haven't harmed. So the NNT dry illustrates for us that all these adverse effects of treatments are disproportionately applied to an unfortunate few, while the rest of us manage to escape them. And so NNT dry shifts the clinical conversation from a serious discussion of risk, one can say, you know, this treatment is dangerous, the NNH is only five, to really a state of reassurance best described, we think, as willful ignorance. You know, maybe so, NNH is five, but four of them will do just fine. I'll put in a picture or a figure in the show notes that helps visualize what you're trying to get across there. Can you give the SGMers a practical application of these new tools to interpret the literature? Sure, let's, uh, let me take this. So uh, let's take thrombolysis for the treatment of acute ischemic stroke as an example. And we're gonna take some risk estimates from a individual patient data meta-analysis published in the, the journal Lancet in 2014. This was by uh, Emberson and group. And uh, they estimate that the NNT, the number needed to treat to achieve excellent functional recovery three to six months after an ischemic stroke range from 10, an NT of 10, when treatment was given within three hours of symptom 
onset, all the way to an NNT of 50 when treatment was given in the window of 4.5 to 6 hours after symptom onset. Well, I've covered the thrombolysis literature for acute ischemic stroke on the SGEM multiple times and have expressed some concern over the Emerson et al. systematic review and meta-analysis. The last time we covered stroke was with Dr. Jerome Hoffman and Dr. Eddie Lang. I'm fairly confident in the NNH with thrombolysis, but I'm less confident of the NNT. Yes, I realize that this is a controversial area for some uh, S-gemmers. Let's just, uh, let's take that skepticism about the NNT and see how the NNT wet helps you. So I mentioned the NNT values of 10 and 50 for IV thrombolysis, depending on when the treatment was given relative to symptom onset. These two numbers of 10 and 50 translate to NNT wet values of 9 to 49. So 1 minus 10 minus 1 and 50 minus 1. Thus, to impart therapeutic benefit, clinicians must labor to rapidly identify, evaluate, and treat between 9 and 49 patients who are exposed to the cost and risk of treatment without receiving any corresponding treatment benefit. And likewise, we know that the estimate of the number needed to harm for seven-day intracranial hemorrhage after treatment is a mere 40, regardless of when the treatment was given, whether it's within three hours or within six hours. Uh, yet the corresponding NNT dry value, 40 minus 1, is 39. So at least clinicians can find some solace in knowing that 97% of the patients treated in this case, 39 or 40, who they treat with IV thrombolysis will escape this particular harmful effect. Well, have you identified any limitations to the NNT wet and dry? Yeah, well, um, as we talked about the limitations of the NNT earlier, those same limitations applied to the wet and dry versions. So uh, all these number needed two values are time dependent. And so the choice of the particular time interval is often arbitrary, but as we discussed earlier, it's important that we use or understand what those time intervals are. And if we're comparing numbers, we're using the same time period when we're making those comparisons. Also, in making those comparisons, we can get into the risks of or the downside of assuming that treatment benefits and harm are constant over time. They may not be. You know, a drug might have a long latency period where it's not effective for one or two or three years, and then it becomes effective for a long-term preventative agent, for example. Or a drug could be much more effective in the short term, but then have very little benefit in the long term. So, you know, imputation, if you will, across time period is an important limitation of these NNT wet and dry values. And then, of course, there's always there's the usual limitations of the underlying data that drive these estimates. So, you know, uh, how long were these uh, clinical trials conducted? What is, the, what is their length of follow-up? What are their baseline risks? How variable were the baseline risks across different subgroups? So there's the usual limitations of the underlying 
trial data which generally is used is the primary source to populate NNT and NNH figures. And then finally, uh, you know, both the NNT and the NNH, and so therefore the NNT wet and dry versions, foster a sort of common misconception that treatment decisions should only be quantified in terms of a binomial uh, binary outcome, and that either a, pe a patient receives harm or benefit, yes or no, binary. And so this sort of becomes this idea of this sort of lottery interpretation of treatment effects. And these, these are not necessarily the only realistic way of specifying treatment benefit. And there are other outcomes which uh, are important to patients, but can't necessarily be quantified by a simple binary yes, no answer. Well, thanks for uh, telling us about the NNT wet and dry and discussing some of the limitations. Can you give the SGMers a bottom line from your study? Yeah, so NNT wet and dry, uh, we think uh, represent novel and uh, mostly uh, satirical new tools for clinicians and patients to understand their treatment options. And we think with practice and utilization that we think these can have a meaningful uh, change in the conversation between clinicians and patients and uh, maybe even change some clinical decision making. So you said mostly satirical. So should we be using the NNT wet and dry and apply it clinically? Well, we can't say the NNT wet and dry really are true population-based measures, more so than NNT and NNH. Uh, our new metrics are uniquely patient-centered in that they apply to the vast majority of patients who are neither benefited nor harmed by any treatment. So in other words, we're, we're 99 percenters, not 1 percenters. Uh, the NNT wet and NNT dry remind us all that our clinical medicine excels in inefficiency. So all of you listeners out there who are clinicians can rest assured that most of your well-intentioned treatments have no effect whatsoever for good or for ill. Oh, we can't leave it on that note. Um, this is the holiday edition of the SGM Extra. Is there anything else, Matt, that you want to bring in here before we finish up? Well, yeah, that does sound like a little bit of a downer to end the year, and we don't want to do that. So we, we think these new measures, uh, what I hope they will do is uh, emphasize again to clinicians that it, it, it is important to, be, uh, to bring numeracy to your clinical decision-making and understand how these, uh, these numbers work. And I think that we can improve patient outcomes. We can improve the efficiency of medical care by considering the NNT wet and the NNT dry value. So this represents another tool that we could use so that patients get the best care based on the best evidence. Ah, that feels better. Well, thanks, Matt, for coming on the show. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. And thanks, Josh. Hopefully this will stimulate your clinical epidemiology class for those 200 first-year medical students. Yeah, anytime. Happy to be here. Happy holidays to the SGMers, and I hope you get some time off over the next couple of weeks to spend time with friends and family, and wish all of you the best in 2020. To finish off this holiday SGM Extra episode, can you guys give the SGM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. I hope everyone has a great 2020.